When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. Today we have a new exciting announcement. We are doing what is called the Bee Buzz. What is the Bee Buzz, you ask? Great question. So in the past, I've tried to do episodes that are geared towards a specific subject or a specific topic. And then uh, I will add in, you know, towards the end, maybe a little bit of a um, you know listener email section, a couple of personal updates. Maybe I'll go back and comment on something from before where I either messed up or wanted to add to or correct something. And that's fine. I think that kind of works. But there's been a lot of occasions where I've gotten through all the content and there's just no time left over. And I haven't gotten to the questions and kind of like the Q&A type things. And, you know, I always respond to people's emails directly, but I get such good emails that I really want to make sure that I'm sharing that information with everyone else. Because if one person's experiencing that problem or situation, someone else is going to be experiencing it as well. So what I decided to do with splitting up the bee buzz is it's kind of multifaceted. So one of them is going to be, uh, again, to kind of laser focus on the episodes themselves, you know, the weekly episodes that come out every week on time. Yeah, I, I haven't quite figured that part out yet, so I'm still working that. Bear with me. But what this is going to allow is for the regular air quotes weekly episodes to still go on as they do. But when I think of something, when an idea pops into my head, instead of me making a note and saying, okay, I'll discuss this in, you know, in the next episode, I can just jump in right away and say, hey, everybody, just wanted to talk to you real quick. Uh, I was in the yard today. I was messing around with the colony. I saw this thing that I haven't seen before or haven't seen in a while, or there was a unique thing that I thought might be useful in some way. I can just have that discussion and it might be, you know, five, 10 minutes. It might be 30, 40 minutes, but it just allows there to, to be a little bit less structure so that if there's a subject that needs to be discussed, it can be here. And this can kind of be like a free for all where it's just a lot of information coming out. Um, I'd like to actually get it to a point where I can almost go live where I could, you know, set up a, a little bit of a schedule and have somebody dial in, be able to talk to them for a few minutes, discuss a few things that's going on with them. And, you know, we'll, we'll air that uh, on the podcast as well. And that's what the B buzz itself will be for. And the individual episodes will be strictly instructional. So it kind of, it's almost like uh, what I would say is sort of like the, the no video version of a TikTok. You know, you get all the benefits of the information, 
without having to actually look at me. So it's kind of a big win because I've got a face for radio. So we'll see what happens. We'll see how it all comes together. I'm definitely open to feedback. Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com if you can think of an idea or you know, uh, something that we can incorporate in to make things better. I'm all ears. So let's jump in and get to work here. Want to do a quick mention from the last episode. I, I had made a comment with regard to when a queen goes out and mates with, I think I used it singularly to say a drone. Uh, that really should be, you know, that she's mating with multiple drones. I mean, I think that, you know, there's obviously going to be a range depending on the availability of drones, but the numbers, you know, should be somewhere in that 12 or 15 to 30 kind of range. I would say the average is probably like 18 to 24 total drones that a, a virgin queen will mate with on her mating flight. So I just didn't want you to think that there's this one lucky drone, he's the one forever, and, and that's not exactly the case. So and, and on that subject, I think it's really cool when you think about all of the genetic diversity that comes into that mating flight, right? I mean, because, you know, as uh, any animal in the wild, you know, the, if they were to mate, like if you had like a, um, just pick like like a lion pride, you know, the strongest lion wins, and over time, that lion might get beat out by a stronger lion, and he gets all the mating rights. You know, with this queen bee, she goes out, and that's the one shot. It's the one time she goes out, and she gets mated for life. So all of these drones who are competing for that opportunity, that's that's their one shot. So let's say that she mated with 20 drones. I mean, that's, that's a large set of diversity in that one flight. I, I think it's just kind of a cool, neat thing. So hopefully there was no, no confusion with the uh, single drone versus multiple drones thing. Uh, another discussion came in from an email this week with regard to Apivar. Uh, I mean, we talk about Apivar a lot for the treatment of Varroa, and I don't think we really talk about where it goes or, or sort of how long it needs to be in place. So from the manufacturer, if you talk to Apivar, I'm pretty sure that their documentation is going to list it as being six weeks. I think four to six weeks is a good time frame to have apivar strips in the colony since uh, varroa you know lives and breeds basically inside of brood inside of a capped brood cell you want to make sure that you're putting the strips in the brood chambers it's going to be basically like two strips per brood chamber i would say probably a little bit closer towards the middle depending on your setup and how things are laid out typically the bees are going to start from the center of of the hive body and kind of work their way out so if you envisioned it, if you were looking down at a hive body with frames from left to right being 1 through 10 as an example on a 10-frame setup, they're going to start in you know 5 or 6 is where they're going to start. And then they'll branch out to 4 and 5, 6 and 7, and kind of spread like that. So I would have the strips around frames 3 and 4, and then maybe 7 and 8, or you know 6 and 7, somewhere in that area, so that they're, again, more towards the middle third to middle half of the of the hive for maximum exposure to all of the workers. But the reason that I was bringing this up or that this discussion came up um, at this time of year, of course, because there's a lot of eggs being laid by the queen right now, ramping up for the, the spring nectar flow. And a lot of people, rightfully so, want to start treating their queen or treating their colony and getting them as healthy as possible going into the spring. But, you know, with that big flow that's coming on here soon, they want to get some honey, obviously. So what I would recommend is get them on as early as you possibly can. Now, when I say that, don't open the, the, the hive prematurely, but when it is safe to open the hive and get into it, which we're going to discuss in the next full episode here, episode 27, that's when you want to go ahead and get your Apovar strips or whatever solution that you're using in. Mark the date on the calendar, set a reminder on your phone, whatever it might be. 
but you're not going to be putting honey supers that are for human consumption onto the hive while you're treating for apivar. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with you putting them on there for the bees. And, you know, that's what they use to overwinter or that's dedicated for them or whatever it might be. You know, make a mark somewhere or an indication on that hive body that says, you know, this is going to stay in the colony. This is not for human consumption. And giving them that time at the beginning of the season to ramp up, put things where they want them, get everything stored and, and set up and, and really exploding the colony that as, as typically happens in the spring, you know, they're going to want to start putting away some resources anyway. So let them have that, right? They may not even touch a super at this point in time. They may stay in, if you have a too deep configuration, they might pack everything in there early on in those first six weeks. Might be a, a non-issue for you. But like I said, if you do add a super, just make sure you keep that super off as far as it relates to human consumption. Okay, next subject here, still on the kind of Varroa topic, but following up on the VSH, the Varroa Sensitive Hygienic uh, traits of some of these queens that are being bred for you know VSH sensitivity. Um, I reached out to a company now. You know, anytime I mention a company or a business, you know, if I'm actually affiliated with them in any way, or if I'm getting something from them for free, I will absolutely tell you and let you know about that because I don't want anybody thinking that I'm I'm trying to promote something where there's financial benefit to me in some way. So uh, the company is called Wildflower Meadows. You can Google them. And find them online. I have no affiliation with them, don't know them at all. But I did just buy a dozen VSH Queens Italians from them this year. They're going to be delivered in a couple of weeks. I'll have them at the end of the month. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and just see how that works out. So I'm going to document them and keep track of them and, you know, just see in comparison to the colonies that I'm treating and that don't have the VSH resistance or the trait. And we'll just, you know, we'll see how it works out. So I'm kind of excited about that, and I will keep you updated on the, the progress. And if I can actually get all of my brain and body and everything functioning together in unison to actually accomplish a task, I'll do some videos and take some video footage of this because I've got some splits I'm going to be doing here in a couple of weeks. I've got uh, a couple of hive-related videos I've got to do. I'm really far behind on pretty much everything, but that's, you know, if you've been listening for more than three or four episodes, you probably already figured that out. So I've got a listener email here. He was wondering, I only want one hive, but is it possible to just have, you know, three or four brood boxes and one or two supers on it, you know, without having to add more to it and without having to have multiple hives? Now, I've said a lot of times, and I, I tell people on a regular basis, I really love having at least two colonies because if something catastrophic happens for whatever reason, um, the queen becomes ill, they decide to supersede her, the supersedure doesn't go well for whatever reason, they become queenless. So, you know, whatever might happen, having a second colony allows you to take a little bit from that one and give to the other to kind of help help them you know, kind of get boosted a little bit. Now, I say I say that with a little bit of caution. You don't want to take, you know, good genetics in one colony and have bad genetics in the other one and keep taking from the good to lift up the bad and hope that someday their genetics are just automatically going to get better and they're going to start thriving. If there's a genetic issue and something is wrong and it's just continuing to stay and be wrong, don't waste resources from the really healthy, strong colony. Weaken it by continuing to give to the weak colony and the, the one that's got issues just because you want to save them both. Sometimes it's better to just requeen and be done with it. But to answer the question, uh, is it possible to have three or four brood boxes and one or two supers? So the first thing I would say with a lot of that's going to depend on your individual setup, 
when you say three or four brood boxes, in my mind, I, I immediately go to like a 10 frame deep. Now, that may not be what he meant in the email, but when you're talking about three or four deeps, those bad boys, especially when they're packed full of honey, they can get really, really heavy. So if you go to the video by Devin Ron, D-E-V-A-N, last name Ron, R-A-W-N, on YouTube, and I've mentioned him several times before, but he talks quite a bit about the uh, single brood chamber setup and how he does that and, and why he does it. He goes through all the math. It's a great video. I definitely recommend checking that out. But if you're doing a single brood chamber with that approach, then you can run supers, you know, all the way up. You know, you can do medium supers. If you want to do deeps and you're strong enough to do it and you're healthy and you can do that, absolutely. Trying to lift supers, whether they're mediums or deeps, that are fully loaded with honey, it's going to wear out your back. It's going to really mess you up. So I recommend, you know, keeping them... You know, no bigger than the mediums if that's going to be your honey super. And as far as your brood chambers go, again, depends on your configuration, but you can do singles or doubles. Going to a third one is really kind of not necessary because they, I mean, they'll use it and you can dedicate it to the bees and nope, that third one is for them, but it's really just going to be a pretty much all honey. And then they're probably not going to make it up to uh, a lot, maybe one, but maybe not two or three honey supers for you. If you wanted to take honey off that you wanted to harvest, so I would recommend doing either a one or a two you know, brood chamber setup. And then on top of that, you can do as many honey supers as you want to do, as long as they're continuing to expand into that space and make use of it. The one thing that I've, I've kind of mentioned before, but again, that's, that's, why, that's why we're having these discussions, right, is to be able to cover things you know, on more than, more than one occasion so we can keep things fresh in our minds. The, the queen pheromone is really, really important. And the, the younger queens, once they are mated and they're established, and they're laying, you know, that queen pheromone is strong. As the queen ages, that queen pheromone is going to diminish. And that's what's going to indicate to the bees that, okay, it's time to supersede her. It's time to, to do uh, some type of an action that is going to be in the best interest of the entire colony. So spreading that queen pheromone scent throughout the entire colony and that the hive boxes that you have set up is really important. As that colony gets larger and larger, it can become more difficult to propagate that scent. And that can lead to, you know, supersedure type of behaviors. So I would just caution you, if you're, if you're making the hive bigger and you're just continuing to grow, that's fine. But keep an eye out on things. Keep looking for supersedure cells to show up. Because, in that, in the, you know, real clear indicators, if you've got plenty of space and everything looks great, but the colony is super huge, and then you see these cells that are popping up, that's a pretty good indicator that, you know, okay, well, there's not a nectar flow. It's not really a swarm season. There's plenty of room. And yet here is this cell that popped up. It's probably going to be a supersedure cell. So you want to really pay attention to that because it's the natural response of the bees to think that something is wrong with their queen and her scent is not propagating the way it should be. It's time for a new queen. And unfortunately, when the colony is as large as they can possibly be, you get into a situation where it, be, it starts to repeat itself because even a younger queen will, will not have, a, a younger mated and laying queen will not have a strong enough pheromone form. So you can literally get into a thing that would be a repeating cycle that would not be good. So again, my recommendation, you know, one or two brood boxes, queen excluder, and uh, honey supers on top of that, and you should be in business. And like I said, just keep an eye open if things get really, really large. You know, and you can also you can also give some away. If you said it's a springtime, you're like, I just want one colony. When the colony gets really big, you know, put a, put an ad out somewhere or make a note, you know, uh, 
let someone in your bee club know what's going on. Say, hey, I've got tons of bees here. I've got a lot of honey. I don't want to have another colony. If somebody would like to take, you know, a nuke's worth of my bees with the queen cell in them, you know, give me 50 bucks for it to cover the cost of my frames and my wax foundation, and you can have it, you know. And then it's a win-win, right? You've reduced the size of your colony. You're lowering the likelihood of a, of a, a swarm, and you're helping another beekeeper kind of get their start. So a couple of ways to handle that. Next question you had is, in the winter, are we supposed to take off all the supers and, and extra boxes except for just one, or, you know, what do we do? So let's say, uh, let's say for example, that you have two deeps and three mediums. Let's say that was your peak of spring, you know, your peak nectar flow. That's what the final configuration looked like at the peak. Well, depending on where you live, there are some places where that entire setup would need to remain intact because there's going to be such a harsh winter that they're going to need all of that stored honey for themselves. So you would leave that setup as it is. But let's say down south, or even for me, like I overwinter nukes usually pretty successfully if i have a bad winter i I lost uh, i lost two late season splits this year Uh, those are the only colonies that i lost but they were two late season splits they were not as strong as they really should have been i shouldn't have split them when i did it was kind of my fault but i figured i would give them a shot anyway because there were other issues going on that's a whole separate long story but you can definitely overwinter uh, a nuke or just a deep by itself You just need to make sure that the colony has enough resources for where you live. So it kind of goes back to talking to people in your area, uh, talking to beekeepers, bee club folks, and say, hey, look, this is my configuration. This is what I like. What do you recommend? Now, I say you got to take those things with a grain of salt, and I definitely recommend asking multiple sources. I'm going to tell you one thing. You go ask nine other people. Now you've asked 10 people. You're probably going to get 10 different answers because different people like different setups. Different people have found that different things work for them. It's, it's, you know, it's like anything else, shoes, pants, you know, different people have different styles and things they like works for them. No problem. So you're going to have to kind of figure out, you know, what's going to work for you. But one thing you want to avoid is you definitely don't want them to have too little space. I mean, they need to be able to physically move around. They need to have enough resources in the colony to survive. But you don't want a lot of dead space either. So if you have three supers of honey in there and they need that to overwinter, like I said, you're going to leave that. But maybe you can harvest two and leave one for them if that's going to be enough for them, you know, based on your area. But you just don't want dead space. Don't leave you know, two hive bodies that have nothing in them. It's just like, oh, yeah, I put an extra super on there for them to draw up because it was a flow and they never drew it up. Yeah, take that off, right? If it doesn't have something that is going to actively be of benefit to the colony throughout the winter, take it off. Uh, I think when we talked to Ian Stepler of Stepler Farms, like we didn't discuss it that day, but I know that he does a single brood box to overwinter. And, he, of course, he overwinters them in, in a stored in a building, But I think the temperature in there is somewhere like around, I think, 25 or 30 degrees inside that building. But that's a single brood chamber setup that he's got, and that's what they do, and it works great for them. But if you have a deep that has nothing in it, it's just foundation waiting to be drawn up, that's just dead air space, right? And the bees have to keep that air warm inside the colony to keep their cluster warm. And the more space that's in there, that's more area for cold air, and it's just going to be more work for them to keep to keep everybody warm. So eliminate extra space. Uh, If you get to a point where, and this goes for anybody, if anybody has this problem come up and they're like, hey, this is my configuration, this is what I see. I don't have a bee club near me. I don't have anybody who has the answers. What do you think? 
I'll do a little bit of research. You can just tell me your zip code or your area. I'll look around a little bit and I'll say, hey, based on what I'm coming up with, you're going to need 70 pounds of honey to make it through the winter. This would probably be a good setup for you. And again, as always, take it with a grain of salt. Keep doing, you know, doing research and talking to multiple people. Hey, everyone, thank you for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable. In order to help keep the lights on, we do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there, and I appreciate you. We will be right back. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right, everyone, welcome back, and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions, and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official, so just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. Okay, and that leads into some other questions that I had about how to set up your hives. You know, what should I do? And like I said, I know we've discussed it before, but, but you know, let's, let's kind of talk about it again. Like, I, I really like the single brood setup. And I just mentioned the, uh, the site or the, the YouTube link for Devin Rawn, R-A-W-N. His, and his first name is Devin, D-E-V-A-N. It's, I think it's, let me see here. Let me, I got it right here. Okay, here's the video. I think it's maybe like 14 minutes. I did, if I click it now, it'll start. Well, here, I'll just go ahead and click it. Let me see. It's 11 minutes and 11 seconds. So... Watch that video by him. It's called Why Managing Beehives as Single Brood Chambers Works. But yeah, I really like the single deep. The double brood chamber is what I did when I first started. Did that for years. Nothing wrong with that. I've just found that for where we are in Southeast Virginia, we have a really big spring flow. I mean, it's six to eight weeks of just nuts. And then we have this dearth, this period in the June where there's kind of, in the June, period in the summertime where there's just nothing going on. And then usually around the first or second week of August, it starts to ramp up with the fall flow. And then we go into the, the you know, whatever the fall nectar flow is, which is usually fairly light. But the good news is with that dearth, it breaks the, the brood cycle up. So you don't have the issues with Varroa 
being able to replicate, you know, in the uh, capped brood. But with that dearth, there's just nothing. So all this nectar they've pulled in, they've made into honey, and it's capped, and it's beautiful. They're going to start eating it and using it in the summer when they have nothing else. So you'll have a situation where you've got two deeps, and they're packed. I mean, the bottom has, you know, brood and and honey on the sides. The next one's completely packed with honey. You've got a queen excluder. You've got another super on top packed with honey. And you're like, yeah, I got honey for me. And then you take some out for you. And then you go look at the hive on like the 4th of July or 10th of July or whatever. And you're going, well, wait, what happened to all the extra stuff they had? So that's another thing that's important is understanding the nectar flows in your area, how much you need to leave behind, and et cetera. Uh, now, we've talked about queen excluders too you know you hear me mention a lot you know put a queen excluder here or there Uh, it's relatively self-explanatory but how they're used right it's just anywhere you don't want the queen to go that's where you would put a queen excluder but really the only thing to think about is if you're doing a single brood setup you're going to put it right on top of that brood chamber and anything that goes above that is going to be strictly reserved for honey if you're doing a two two brood chamber setup put two boxes queen excluder and go on up from there as with anything else in beekeeping there is some controversy around queen excluders some people swear up and down never use them it damages the wings of the bees and that may be the case i'm sure somebody's done the research somewhere to say yeah you know 17 percent of all of the workers in the colony will suffer damage to their wings if they are continuously going in and out of a queen excluder or crossing through a queen excluder that might be the case I don't know for sure. I use them on all of my colonies that are not nuked kind of colonies. Like if I have a four frame or a four box nuke where it's five over five over five over five, (laughs) or if it's, you know, four frames or whatever they might be just stacked on top of each other by themselves, I don't use a queen excluder. The queen will stay in the lower areas and the honey will be up top. And there are times where a good, good example, I had a 20 total frames. It was five over five over five over five. So it was five frame boxes, four high. The two top nukes were completely packed with honey. The next one down had honey on the left and the right frames. And then you went all the way to the first box. There was honey on the left and the right frames. And everything in the middle was brewed. So I left everything on the bottom half. I took the top two for me put another nuke with you know foundation in there so it went from a four to a three and a four you know four nukes to a three nuke and i put foundation in there let them go back up they had that thing filled up again i think it was a week i mean it was just during a nectar flow and they killed it but i would not use a queen excluder for them but the people who make the argument against queen excluders are going to tell you that well you don't they don't need them you know, they're, they're only going to do like I just described. The queen's going to stay in her area, and she might move up and down a little bit, but she has no need to go all the way to the top. That That's pretty true. That is true. But even if she does come up into, into the scenario I just gave where I had, you know, the five-frame nukes, okay, she comes up into the third one and she lays some eggs. No big deal. Let her lay eggs in there and do her thing. And then when I come in to inspect and move some things around, I'll move those brood frames out, and I'll move them down lower, and I'll just reorganize some things. It's no big deal. Where it becomes a big deal is if you've standardized on deep hardware and your honey supers are all medium hardware, and then you don't have a queen excluder, she comes up into that medium hardware, starts laying eggs, and now you have brood frames mixed in with kind of honey frames. Now, is it possible for you to repurpose that and let them put honey in it later and use it? Sure, absolutely. 
But again, like I, I like to keep my honey that I'm going to consume separate from brood and the diseases and funky things that you might find with that. So can you do it? Yeah. Do I recommend it? Nah, probably not. I definitely recommend isolating your consumption frames from the bees frames just because of the fact that you've given them maybe some medication. There is whatever illness or disease might be present. Let it stay down there with the brood and let it stay away from the honey, the honey that you're trying to consume. Okay, another question came up. Uh, you hear me talk a lot about the Michael Palmer approach with the, the divided deep and then stacking four-frame nukes on top of that. And the question was, um, there, it was, there were two questions with it. One of them was, if you're doing that kind of a setup, how do you face them in the directions that you want? Like I've commented before that I like to face my colonies south and east, and it's just because... If, if I have the, the ability to make that choice, I found that when the sun first pops up and the sun hits the colony, they get more active. You know, And this is for all of my colonies. I've had some of them that are sitting in mixed shade and sun. The sun comes through the, the uh, leaves, hits the front door, kind of lights things up, and they get more active. And as it moves a little bit away, if it's not a as active time of day or time of year, their activity seems to diminish. So I like to face them south and east. I also don't like the, since our winter weather comes from the west, I don't like to face them to the west or the northwest because, you know, cold wind, cold air, it comes from that direction. And I like to keep them away from that cold wind. Yes, cold air is going to get into the hive because it's open, but you don't have to force a lot of really, really frigid air into the colony, you know, as you would by facing it in that westerly direction. So, the question being like, well, if you have a double, you know, one entrance faces one way and the other entrance faces 180 80 degrees exactly opposite of that, like somebody's going to come up on the short end of the stick on that. So what I would tell you is I have pallets that have four colonies and they all face different directions. You know, I take a forklift, I pull up, I lift them up, I move them wherever I want, I drop them off. And somebody's going to be facing south, somebody will be facing east, the others are going to be north and west, just the way it's going to be. The one thing I would suggest is if you have them facing that westerly direction at all, and, and that's the, the direction that your wind is coming from, you can put like a small flap, like a piece of wood or something you could put above the entrance, like at a 45-degree angle off of it to where the bees can still kind of come in and out. Uh, you know, they would come out, they would see that right in front of them, they would go left or right, but it would block that immediate air blowing in but unless you have a consistent all the time steady cold air blowing from that direction it's really not going to be an issue it should not be an issue also with that question though she said well if you've got that double nuke kind of setup and let's say for example we have one facing north and one facing south you know one entrance north and one south you know i have previously mentioned that it's important to slant the colony so that if some rain hits from the outside, it kind of drains forward, or if there's any kind of moisture in the colony that might drip down during the winter, it can kind of drip down, hit the bottom, and kind of roll out the front door versus accumulating in the bottom. Lots of times, if there's any kind of funkiness at the bottom, you know, anything that the bees have cleaned up and just dropped to the bottom board, if water gets mixed up with it, it can become soupy and kind of gross, especially if they don't have the best hygienic kind of genes in, in that colony. So that's why I recommended, you know, having them slant to the front. Well, obviously, if you do that, if there's any kind of a slant, somebody's going to come on the, up on the short end of that stick, right? The colony facing one direction will have great drainage, and the colony facing the other way will not. What I would say is in this setup, just get it as flat as you can. 
if you're noticing that one colony in particular has a lot of stuff and moisture and debris that's left there that they're not cleaning up, you know, I would consider that to be kind of a hygienic trait that you might want to try and phase out. Because, you know, if it's in season where it's summertime and things are active and, like I said, there's some cappings that have come off from capped brood and things that have fallen through as the bees are cleaning, you know, dead bees, anything that might have come in that they propolized and just kind of left it there. There are occasions where, where those things will get wet and soupy and then a fly will get in there and lay an egg and then you have maggots. I've had maggots in the bottom boards before. It's pretty gross. So keep an eye on that colony. If that one in particular is having issues with that, it might make sense to move them to a nuke where you can slant the bottom board and then put a different colony in on that side. But, uh, but in general, it's not really a big concern, but definitely worth mentioning and thinking about. I had someone ask about those four frame nukes, right? Because a standard nuke is typically like a five framer, but I've got I've got two frame, I have some three frame, four frame, and five frame. Some of them are homemade, you know, some of them are bought. But the four frame nukes, I had a hard time tracking those down as well when I was trying to build this configuration years ago. So I went through some receipts and I found the company. Uh, their website is still active. I have not bought from them in years, but uh, it, it was good quality hardware. I still have everything I bought from them is still in use today and it's doing great. It is um, Humble Abodes, H-U-M-B-L-E space A-B-O-D-E-S. They are in Maine. And again, you know, I have no affiliation with them. They're not going to give me a great discount for mentioning them, but they can certainly do so if they would like. If they do, I promise I'll buy more stuff from them. But uh, yeah, Humble Abodes, uh, really good hardware, and they, they can get you those four-frame nukes, and you'll put those right on top of a divided deep. While we're on that subject, I think that that email or another one was, was asking, hey, how do you build that out? There were some questions and concerns around how you build that lower deep. The way that I did mine is start with the bottom board. With the bottom board, you're going to go ahead and get, uh, I take, I have a sawmill, so I can cut wood, but I also have a bandsaw. You can do this however, whatever makes sense for you. But I take, uh, if I'm using the bandsaw, I'll take a regular two by four, which is an inch and a half thick, and I'll cut it right down the middle vertically. So I now have a three quarter inch piece. And then I'll set the fence on my bandsaw to three quarter inches. Uh, Now turning it on its side, I'll cut those at three quarter inches. So I have three quarter inch by three quarter inch strips. Now, if for some reason, you know, you don't have the ability to cut those, you don't have a bandsaw, a hand saw, a circular saw, a table saw, whatever it might be, you can use one by material. You can just go buy a one by whatever and, you know, use a hand saw or whatever and, and cut it one inch by one inch if you wanted to do that. But ideally three quarter inch seems to work pretty well for me. And you'll take those strips and you'll put those around the outside of, you know, like both of the longer sides. And then you'll run one right down the middle. And then now as kind of visualize this from above, you have a piece of wood that has, you know, two longer sides, the two shorter sides. So you've got a piece of wood on both of the longer sides going the, the full length. You have a piece of wood right down the middle going the full length. On the upper left of this, you'll go ahead and put one on that back section as well, completely blocking that. The upper right section will be left open. And then come down to the bottom of that board, the lower right section of that one will be blocked. And the lower left will be open. So that's going to serve as the entrances. The areas that are open will be your entrances. And then from there, you take your deep hive body 
And right down the middle, you need to put some kind of a divider. And there's a lot of ways you can do this, but it just needs to be really solid. The one way you can do this would be to take you know, a piece of wood, make some measurements, cut the piece of wood, put it right there in the middle, staple, glue, nail, whatever you got to do to keep it right in the middle, size it up on that bottom board, make sure everything lines up right, and then you're pretty much done. What I did was I took a side from another deep high body, a brand new side that has the dovetail edges on it. I cut the dovetails off both sides, and then I stuck that, because I knew that was going to be the exact same size. I stuck that in the middle, and then on the top, because there's still a gap where the frame sits, I took a top plate from a frame, stuck that in there on top, and nailed that to the center board. So now both sides were completely divided and everything was great. So that's how I built the bottom one. Um, if anybody has any questions on this, I did put out a video. It's on YouTube. Just look for Samsell Farms. And I go through several different kinds of configurations and ways to set up hives. It's in there in that video. You can take a look. But if this is still an area that we need to dive deeper in, just let me know. Shoot me an email and just say, hey, I need to see this a little more close up or whatever. And I can just dedicate a video to, to covering that in more detail. So that's a piece of cake. All right, so another question I have is when to super? When are we going to put a honey super on? What I would say is you don't want to be supering too early. And, you know, you're doing, you do your first inspection of the season, which, again, we're talking about that here on the next episode that's coming up later today. But if you go too early, uh, again, you're in that situation where you're having space that's in there that needs to stay warm. The, the bees need to keep warm. At this time of year, it can kind of be a very volatile time of year for a colony because, as the weather starts to get warm and nice, they think, okay, cool, the nectar flow is coming. They, they already know it. They've found it. You see them coming in. They're bringing pollen back. They'll take the last remaining resources they have to start feeding the colony, to start feeding the new brood and the bee, um, the bee bread and getting the royal jelly made and all the things they need to, to get their colony ramped up for the spring. They'll start using their remaining resources for that purpose because they know they've got a nectar flow coming in. And then all of a sudden you get four or five days in a row where it's windy and 30 degrees or raining or whatever. And that puts them in a really bad spot because they don't have resources left anymore. They need to stay over that brood to keep it warm. There was a season a couple of years ago, we had a really warm spell in February and like the bees were going nuts. Everything was going great. I was so excited. Then we had a real cold spell in March and I lost two colonies. I had a, at the time, I think I had about 15 and 15 or so colonies and I lost two of them because they weren't able to keep all of their brood warm. They ran out of resources. I opened the colonies up, and each of them had four or five frames that were just packed with capped brood, and they were all dead. And it was just so frustrating and disappointing. So you don't want to add more space for them to heat and maintain and keep warm. So just I would say don't super until the population of the colony is really, really packed in and the weather gets a little bit warmer. So for me personally, I won't super anything in the month of March, basically. Uh, once we get to the consistent temperatures where the nighttime temps are like, you know, at least 48 or 50 and above kind of thing. I mean, I, I shouldn't even say that. That's probably not the best gauge. You'll know, right, when the population is really starting to grow and the nighttime temperatures are not that cool. And because uh, really, even if it is cool outside, the bees will hover over that brood and they will keep them warm as long as there's a nectar flow they've got stored resources already from the spring flow 
and and they're out of space. Like you can look in the colony and see there's no space for them to put things. It's definitely a good time to start supering. You know, just don't do it too early. And like I said, we're going to discuss this again on episode 27. Nothing I wanted to mention is Alicia Bixler. Uh, she's from How's Your Day, Honey, in Tampa, Florida. Um, she's doing some kind of cool things down there. Another listener actually sent me an email about her, and, and she's kind of a neat gal. So I reached out to her. We've agreed to sync up at some point in time and have her on the show. So we're going to do that very soon. Want to make sure I brought that up. And the last thing I wanted to cover here today is uh, from Karina. You probably remember us talking about her and some of the messages that she sent in couple weeks ago with regards to splitting and things like that and splitting is going to be episode 28 we're going to talk about some of the things you want to do for your you know your spring splits but um she was getting ready to add a new queen cell and then she was going to split her her main hive apart move her existing queen somewhere else and put a queen cell into the existing colony and uh you know we discussed everything about that and and keep in mind there are some risks with that approach because she was using a queen cell versus using a mated queen so using a queen cell is fine. It's a cost-effective way to do things. Uh, you put the queen cell in a couple of days before it hatches. Queen hatches. She goes through, looks through the colony, makes sure there's no other competing queen. You know, queens that are going to be born soon. She goes in her mating flight. She comes back mated, starts laying eggs. Everything is great in the world. Unfortunately, it appears as though in Karina's situation that the queen was born. She did her, her you know, activities in the colony, went out on her flight, and never came back. Uh, the colony made a whole bunch of queen cells. She sent me a picture. These are good, big, healthy queen cells. So that's great. I mean, obviously, it speaks to the, you know, the health of the hive overall. But uh, unfortunately, they they packed things up with those emergency cells, and a new queen, you know, should be emerging pretty soon. My recommendation to her was to keep, you know, whatever the largest, healthiest looking queen cells are there. You know, leave those alone. But if you have too many of them, especially if there are some smaller ones that don't look very well developed, go ahead and take those out. Get rid of them. Uh, you don't want to be in a situation where you have, you know, 15 queens being born around the same time and you have this battle royal fighting it out in the colony and some of them get injured or hurt and, and then they're not able to be effective when they go out to fly on their mating flights. You don't want to have too much combat going on. So reduce it down to like, you know, three or four and let them kind of go from there. That's, that's my opinion. So hopefully one of those queens will emerge, take care of business there in the hive, and we'll get out and get mated and return and, and get that colony up and running here for Karina. So I'm standing by to hear an update from her. We'll see how that works out. So, folks, that's all that I have on the first episode here of the Bee Buzz. Uh, I, I really like it. There's a lot of content out there. As you can see, I mean, this is a pretty long episode, and it's just chit-chatty kind of things that are that are going on and that are just kind of miscellaneous notes. And I think that this is a really great way to separate things from the primary episodes that are really geared to be more instructional. But I definitely welcome your thoughts, ideas, suggestions, feedback on it. You know, it's just Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. And I think that's going to pretty much wrap it up today, folks. I got to get my notes together and get episode 27 done today as well. So you should see that out. I'll just say by the end of the weekend, because although I am a talker and I do run my mouth a lot, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep running my mouth for another hour or so. So we'll see how that works out. Everybody have a great weekend. Stay safe, stay out of trouble, and we'll talk to you soon.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.